All right. So today on the podcast, we have a roundtable with Abel Chabayi, Jeffrey Very Schofield, and Natural Hypertrophy. How are we doing, guys? Great. I don't actually know if I've hosted a four-person roundtable, maybe once. I, I've done a number of three-person ones. So we'll see how the... Because uh, you guys did a three-person one last week. That'll probably be out by the time this is released. Uh, so we'll see how the interruptions go with four different time zones and internet connections and all that. But uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. So big first topic. I have 18 pounds of liver sitting in my freezer that I think I have to throw out. What do you guys think? Um, well, uh, what kind of liver? This is bull, bull liver specifically. I got the testicles in one drawer and I got their liver in another drawer. So, uh, yeah, so big, big news this past week. I've literally seen every single person, even outside of our industry. I, I've seen this guy who talks on plastic surgery, who's talking about it. I've seen people just like in, in like the regular news talking about it. So uh, I can't imagine many people are surprised. But what I was telling Abel before is that my thoughts are this guy is not going to lose really any money. I just think that he was an entertainer. I can't, I mean, it, I guess really people did, some people did believe it, but to me, it was just a hype thing. And um, the only thing that kind of annoys me is guys like, like Mark Bell and them now, like just coming down on him when it's like, dude, you had him on the podcast, I think multiple times acting like this is the way and everything. And it's just, you can't then like, like, to be fair, like the guy, um, Sean Baker, he was from the start, he's all, he's a carnivore guy. Um, and, and he, from the start was saying, this is BS, right? This is not legitimate. So I can like, okay, you were the same throughout, right? And you knew, whereas like Paul Saladino and stuff like that, it's like, you can't tell me you didn't know <laughs> this guy was geared up like crazy. I mean, and especially because he knew him for five years. And so you saw this transformation, like he was doing all the carnivore stuff and the supplements. And then you saw him add like 50 pounds of muscle. So to me, that's just blatant basically just being completely fraudulent. So um, I don't know. I'm sure we probably all have the same opinions, but any other thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that in situations like this, it's not just looking at the people who fell for it that's interesting. It's also taking a look at the people that clearly knew, but just went with it because it also benefited them because they could latch themselves onto his business model and make money in the meanwhile. And when these people afterwards turn their coats and say, well, I'm, sh I'm shocked. How could he? Well, you, you knew that's a hundred percent certain like Mark Bell. I love Mark. I watched super training when I was uh, actually getting started training and I was interested in powerlifting before I moved into bodybuilding. He's a good guy and the channel is great, but he he has been around PD users for his entire life. He's been taking PDs his entire life. He knows what they do and he knows what people who take them look like. Like that lobster look, that right. reddish look. Oh yeah, We yeah. all know that look. That's not natural. You can't look like that natural. So when he was sitting across that guy who's always shirtless and praising him and saying, oh, I can't believe you got this big natty. Unless he's willing to admit that he's a complete idiot, at which point I'm just going to stop listening to him. He has no legitimacy anymore because you, it, you can't get full to that level. You knew, but you still gave that guy a platform because he gave you views in return. And now you want both hoods. You want to pretend like you are full like the rest of us. Well, I don't think it looks like that. I think that every single person that sided with him need to be treated the same way that he's been treated. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would agree. Um, I mean, Mark Bell, a while ago, it might have been his brother, he did a documentary on steroids. Yeah, like Chris Bell. Faster, stronger or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so, and considering his own usage and the fact that, I mean, he should have known. He knew. Like, let's obviously, he knew. He knew for sure. Yeah. He just decided to uh, put money over the truth and platform this guy. And, and I guess there's the argument that, um, oh, you don't want to push your guest on a podcast or, or anything like that. You don't want to be rude of all things. But, I mean, that's bullshit. That, that's, just, that's just BS. And it's, it's yeah. sad to see because Mark is, I mean, I used to watch his stuff as well. And it's just, it's just disappointing to see another instance of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just, uh, I mean, obviously I agree uh, with what you guys are saying. It's just um, for me, this was the fact that he got exposed. Like that was the least interesting part for me in this whole thing. Cause I mean, yeah, like it, it was so, so obvious. It's funny if anybody really thought that he wasn't using but what I will say is, I mean, along the lines of what you guys mentioned as well, that like, it reflected on a couple of people for me, like almost as badly as it did on him. Like as far as he's concerned, like my, I mean, I didn't really have any views on him. I didn't even watch like any of his videos like ever. So didn't change anything. But like, for example, the fact that like someone like leaked out his his emails, um, it's not that like I feel sorry for Liver King. Like I I don't I don't care, and probably he does deserve it because like probably he's a charlatan, or at least does some shady stuff. I don't know. Probably he de deserves it, but it's kind of like one of those things where in prison, like even the prison guards usually don't like the like the 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 traitor amongst the the prisoners who is like ratting others out and whatever. Like nobody has respect for that person. Like I I sort of feel like that about this one. And then you yeah, like all well, the hypocrisy. Like I just hate it when like these crazy, sophisticated, like like business people in the fitness industry or any industry, like all of a sudden act like these like shocked saints. They're like, oh my God, like how how could someone do this? It's like, come on, yeah. dude. Like it's it's clearly like vigorous Steve as well. It, it's he's saying that like he exposed him because he saw that like people are or believing him that they will look like him if they eat like him. It's like, come on, like, really? Like you, a ton of, you know, enough people in the fitness industry where that should not be something new for you. Right. So definitely there was like something personal, which we don't know about. So it's just the hypocrisy and whatever. I'll shut up. But yeah, it was pretty bad. Uh, yeah. No, I, <laughs> you, got, you guys know who Bill Burr is, the uh, comedian? Of course. Yeah, and he has this bit on, um, like, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tiger Woods. It's obviously, you know, that, that you got a whole ethical issue there. But he's just like these, these like, fat reporters are like, oh, the travesty, their legacy is destroyed. And it's just like, as if you have any idea, you know, like, what that's like or anything. So uh, he's got some funny commentary there. But, but yeah, the whole thing is just kind of crazy. I was going to say with, with Mark Bell, you know, his, uh, I don't know if it's a partner or whatever, the guy in SEMA. Mm-hmm. And he's like massive and he is allegedly natural. And I don't usually get into the whole like natty or not thing, but he's huge. And I kind of was just like, you know, I don't know, maybe potentially, I don't know what he looks like in person, et cetera. But just hearing that Mark Bell was always like, oh yeah, no, he's actually natural. But then seeing that he didn't push liver King, like that also then makes me go back and question other people that like Mark Bell has vouched for and, and whatnot, you know? So um, I think when you have one clear instance of just, bullshitting that makes people question a lot of other stuff that you've maybe done or said yeah and and with mark what also made me laugh is that he's friends with michael hearn 
right. and they've been friends for years. But with Mike, he's perfectly able to say, well, the guy is lying. Even to oh, his he mate. says that? Yeah, he, really? calls, like, he calls him Michael Tran. That's from him. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's, that's, that's also what I didn't understand. Like you, your, your friend from like so many years back, you're fine with saying that to his face, but that Liver King guy, on top of this, I think that it would have been great entertainment. Because every single time you saw someone try to push Liver King's buttons, he always has the same reactions. He reacts like a child. Mm. He always gets flustered. He has no arguments because, of course, so he retorts with arguments like, well, you're not primal enough or you need to be more <laughs> badass like I am. That's, that's fun to troll that type of individual. And I would have hoped that someone would have actually tried. But to rebound on what... Um, Abel just said, maybe uh, it's going in a little bit early. I just woke up, but I'm already fired up. I think it's hilarious that it would be more plates, more dates out of anyone who would expose the guy because he's the very person who gave him a platform. Before more plates, more dates, Liver King had no existence on YouTube whatsoever. He started his channel after more plates, more dates made a Nadia on video on him. And he got 100k subscribers in a matter of weeks. Really? Because of that, this is mm. what kickstarted his platform and his career on YouTube. Interesting. So you mean to tell me that Derek didn't know back then that he was clearly on juice and was like apprehensive about it or in the middle? Then he got it on his, on his podcast as well. He gave him a platform a second time, all the while clearly have, having email exchanges with the guy and knowing that he was not natural. He knew back then because that's where the emails come from. And now he has like this more revolutionary thinking, wow, maybe exposing my audience to a clear liar is a bad thing. And it is my duty to expose the guy right now. I don't buy it either. I think that it's a pure business decision. We don't know what's going on in the background. He, he calculated in his head that it would be more beneficial for his brand to expose him now, to sink the boat now, because he didn't want to sink with him because he was going to get exposed at some point. And he just made that choice. I mean, it doesn't make him a bad guy, but I find it again laughable that we are now supposed to think that Derek is this more entity and being when it's all about money. So I, I have quick thoughts on that, um, Jeff. I don't know if you have any thoughts or have, have you chatted with uh, Derek, Jeff? A little bit, yeah. Okay, um, I, I've just briefly talked to him, um, not about the Liver King thing, but. Um, my understanding, I, I really, honestly, it was only until it was only recently that I started following the liver King stuff, but my understanding was that Derek had said he was not natural and that he only just recently found these emails or something. Again, I, I have no idea, you know, what's true, but I believe that's the story at least is, is that he only just recently, that he didn't know he had these emails. Um, I know vigorous Steve obviously knew the whole time because he, he put out his video on that. Um, but, but yeah, it is all interesting yeah, yeah and I, messed up, I just want to interject for one second because i know for a fact that people in the comments are not going to understand exactly what i'm trying to get at people are going to tell me well he was making the natty or not but he said in the natty or not that he's clearly not natty that's not really my point my point is that he knew for a fact the guy wasn't natural right he works with pd users he texts pds he knows what they look like and yet he still took the time out of his day to make an idea or not about the guy. The goal was to create an entity, in my opinion, it was to create a golem that he would then be able to use to push his own brand. He didn't really care if Liver King was able to make money off of people then. He just wanted the ability to have one more toy. And that's how he functions. He creates toys, then he makes videos about them, he hypes them up. It creates more 
potency in the media, it gives him more views and visibility. And now, when the toy is broken, essentially, he's selling it to the to the biggest buyer, and that's exactly what's happened now. He capitalized so much that again, it's in the media. Like actual news sources are talking about right, the guy. Right. But if you take one step back and you look at the entire thing objectively, is it newsworthy? Another guy is revealed to be on drugs. Really? It, we're going to stop the wood and focus on this. Because that's what it's been for a week. Everyone has been making videos about the guy. But it's completely uninteresting. Why? Because everyone wants their part of the pie. So Derek has the biggest part and everyone else is taking their part because it gets us all views. But at the end of the day, it's doing nothing for the viewer because it is obvious that the guy was on drugs. Obvious. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth noting that a pretty significant portion of Natty or Nots are not necessary because it's yeah. pretty obvious one <laughs> way or the other, at least to you know people who are in the industry and, and are either natural or enhanced, but have just been in, have seen a lot of clearly enhanced physiques, have seen a lot of presumably natural physiques, and you're never really going to know 100% either way. And there are some people in the gray zone where it is sort of an interesting conundrum. Oh, maybe they are, maybe they're not. Look at their progression, et cetera. I think it is just a title. And in some ways, the viewer is to blame and society is to blame because that's what people are clicking on. And so if people didn't click, that genre wouldn't exist, right? And so I, it, it's tough because almost every big channel gets big because they prioritize click-through rate. So they find something that works for them and then they make a whole bunch of similar videos. And so I, I kind of find it hard to find fault because I understand, you know, can I, can I really get angry at Derek for making a video that he knows is going to do well? A little bit, but at the same time, I kind of understand it too. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. And that um, it's, I guess it's almost like a transitional topic there where just what works for the YouTube algorithm and whatnot. Like, so it, there's a guy, Chael Sonnen, who does a lot of uh, commentary on MMA. And he he says a lot of nonsense, but he's somewhat entertaining. But he uh, he had a video and it was like the Liver King's apology. And he's not really in the fitness world at all. But I just looked and then I saw another one two days later and it was something like, do we accept the Liver King's apology? And I thought about it. And I was like, let me look back at that first video. And it got, you know, 10 times more views than his regular, uh, than his regular videos. So I'm sure he saw that and he's like, oh, this got these views. I'm going to make another one. And it's just whatever his team or he decides works for the algorithm. And that, I mean, literally, that's why everybody was talking about it. And it's funny because something I, I, when I started the podcast, I did it out of enjoyment. I was like, this is kind of like fun. And I'm, you know, I'm adding friends to my life. I'm meeting all these people. I mean, Abel and I've known each other for like four years now. We talk all the time. So you're meeting people and somewhere along the line, I realized like, oh, I'm kind of an outlier in that regard. I think you guys are also kind of like that, like natural hypertrophy. You know, you don't even monetize your channel. I don't think so there, but for a lot of people, this is their job and or business. And so I, I, there's an ethical consideration, but I also do understand like this is marketing for them. This is what gets people to their channel. So you have to, there's a fine line because you have a very impressionable audience, but I do to, to Jeff's point, I understand that, Hey, this worked. We're going to keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the only thing people love more than controversy 
is a good old grovel. You get someone whose face is in the dirt and they're saying they're sorry and stuff like that. People eat that up. I mean, if you look at these big YouTubers who, you know, sell out their audiences and stuff like that, and then they're, they're caught and they have to apologize. The apology videos with all the tears and all the fake I'm sorry's and all that shit, people love it. Those videos do tremendously, even though they're not, you know, there's no substance to them. There's no benefit to the viewer, but people don't care because they just want to be entertained. Right. They just want to feast on that kind of fake suffering. I mean, some of my best videos that people say have helped them the most absolutely tank in right. terms of views. And I yeah. know they're going to, I know they're going to tank. I yeah. know in advance, this is going to be a nine out of 10 video or a 10 out of 10 video. So like bottom of the barrel in terms of views, but you know, I still make those videos. Whereas a lot of big channels, they just don't because they know in advance, those topics are going to, you know, dive bomb and they know which topics are going to do really well. And so they choose to do the topics that do really well. Yeah, it's, um, I would actually be curious what you guys think of this. Um, Dave and I talked about this quite a lot. And I think Jeff, when I had you on my podcast first, we talked about this, that it's very hard. It kind of relates to the gear topic. I don't know if we are going to talk about that as well, but um, it's kind of a similar thing in that it's hard to be consistent, I guess, logically, if you want to hate on, for example, clickbait. Or, or any kind of unethical marketing. Because like, if, you're, if you really think about it, marketing almost always overstates things a little bit. And I mean, you know, NH, for example, you, you don't monetize your channel, but I mean, you are pretty good with titles. Like, um, you, 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 like it's a controversial topic, like uh, bullying is good and moral. I didn't watch that video in full, but I'm pretty sure that's not literally what you're saying in the video like probably it is still controversial but like you, you need to capture attention and and like you you need to invoke people's like uh i don't know drama sensor somehow to 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 actually get them in and i mean everybody has to do it to some extent so if you're gonna hate on something like this i mean you gotta think it through because odds are that you yourself are doing something like that. And it's just like everybody has a different threshold, right? Like, okay, I'm not not willing to go beyond this. But it's and and it's also unfortunate because you know the like life in in usually every area is going to reward those that have a higher threshold that they are willing to go further. Like if like you will be very ethical and very likable and poor like that's how usually it ends up and 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 you know a couple of people are gonna pat you on the back and say like man like like we need more people like you and it's like yeah and i need more money god damn it like it's uh, at a certain point you you gotta make a decision uh if it was up to me i would never ever mention that i i do coaching or any of that stuff but i mean any any one of you might know that uh if if you don't mention it, people don't know about it. So you 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 gotta do these uncomfortable things. So it's all a spectrum, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and it's really getting into the the meta of what YouTube is, right? Because we make videos, we know what's behind the curtain. Everyone else is looking at the spectacle. They look at the monkeys dancing. We are the monkeys. So you're correct in what you say is that I personally hate clickbait, but I clickbait as well. Because there is no way to exist without clickbaiting. And it's funny because you guys are OGs, you remember. When YouTube started, titles were informative. Or they were like statements. This is what the video is about. Today we talk about this. 
if you clickbaited, if you attempted to entice the viewer even a tiny bit, people got mad, really mad. Ten years later, it's the norm. You cannot exist without it. And it's, it's very simple. Why? It's because a few people started doing it. They got hated, but they also got bigger off of it. So the rest was like, well, I mean, I don't want to be ethical and moral, but also small. I want to compete with the big guys. So they started clickbaiting as well. And now if you don't clickbait, and Geoff knows that, and you guys might know that as well, the video, thanks. You can sit on the video. You know for a fact it's not going to do well. If the title is telling people what is in the video, they will not click. They will simply not click. You have to trick people. Sometimes I feel like an old pervert trying to lure kids in my white van with candies. But <laughs> I want them in my white van because I want to teach them things, right? But until I can get them in, it's useless. So I'll make a very good video and I'll be like, okay, this is what the video is about. This is what the actual title should be. How can I make it as appetizing as possible? How can I make it that people are going to be intrigued? And that's what I do. And I... I hate that I have to do that, but it's because, again, we know how YouTube functions. It's all about the views. It's about the click-through rate. And it also explains why everyone is making videos about Liver King. YouTubers are Pavlov's dogs. They will make videos, and in their brain, they will filtrate between, okay, this gets views, and this gets no views. People like Geoff and I and us, we do both, right? We, we want the channel to survive, so we make videos that get views, and we make videos that we know are good, and we have a balance. But for a YouTuber who wants to make money, there's no point in making the video that gets no views. They don't care about if it helps people. They'll keep spamming the video that gets views. So they'll always stick with what the algorithm likes and it reinforces the algorithm so more people do it. And that's how you make the money. That's how the world goes round. That's most of YouTube. This is why we ended up with people who have absolutely no idea about bodybuilding or fitness who make videos about Liver King. What do they know? Well, what they know is that everyone talks about it. So if they talk about it, they'll get views and that's it. They'll shrug their shoulders. And before I... Um, I, 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 je rends l'antenne before I stop rambling. Geoff said something interesting with uh, groveling, that people love it. They love excuses. Yes, they do. And I think the explanation is not because it's entertaining. It's because it makes them feel better. They have their heroes. And what they love the most about that is that they adore the guy. So when the guy is on his knees, it makes them feel better because they're like, oh, wow, for a second, I'm better than you. I can feel better than you for that one second. And it connects with what Dave was saying about Gilbert's uh, tirade or rant. That's very funny where he says, well, you're that, like, that fat guy from behind the dumpster who has a shitty car and no wife. You're going to hate on Schwarzenegger because he did something that you think is reprehensible. You don't actually care that what he did is morally wrong. What you want is that you want to feel better than him for that one second. So you mix this word of algorithmic tyranny of sorts where you have to be clickbaity with viewers that love that type of stuff and ta-da, you have YouTube fitness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, NH, thank you for giving me the, the clickbaity title of this. Of NH feels like an old pervert luring people into his car. So that'll, that'll get a lot of views for sure. I acted like a pedophile, NH. <laughs> um but yeah even for whatever reason uh, you know something i've said to abel and i've said on the podcast is is, you know my the size of my channel is is almost exactly what i would expect it to be based on the type of content i make like i'm not sitting here surprised you know that why don't i have a million followers it's like well because that's that the content i make doesn't really apply to that 
Whereas uh, I had a plastic surgeon on the one I referenced earlier, Dr. Gary Linkoff. And when he was at 20,000, I told him, your channel is absolutely going to blow up rapidly. And now he's at 300,000. It's because people, oh, this celebrity's transformation. Did they get plastic surgery? Like, oh, that's exactly what works. And from literally the time I've been on YouTube, from 2000, I want to say nine or 10, the Natty or Not videos have been the way to do it. Like Jason Blaha blew up. And, you know, at the time, 100,000 was a lot. He blew up through Natty or Not videos, right? I'm, two, three years ago, I made a video saying Greg Doucette is like the second coming of Jason Blaha. Now, in a lot of ways, it's different, but it just in the sense that he blew up by making these Natty or Not videos. And so if, if you do that and you have some background that people believe, like, you know, I, I, if Abel made Natty or Not videos, I don't know how those would do. Maybe it would be okay. But like, Jason Blaha at the time was seen as this, this gear guru. So he had the background that was believable. Um, Greg Doucette, oh, powerlifter, bodybuilder, he has the background. It works. Um, even like Derek More Plates, More Dates, like he, he's got this pharmacology background, or at least, you know, that's where his interest lies. And so the point is, really, from inception, um, I agree with you, NH, that, that things have changed, but there's still always been that, like, call out type video that has gotten people to blow up and that's that there's almost a formula there that works for a lot of these people but it's as you mentioned not really of substance and to be fair youtube doesn't all have to be informational i mean it's an entertainment platform but but it just depends on how you're trying to uh come across i suppose to the audience yeah i think it's it's the toughest and and we also talked about this like would we be able, like, would I be able to do videos that I really don't want to do? And I just do them as a, as a job, just like crank them out. And it's like very dry. Like I'm bored to death while even thinking of the script of the video and whatever. It, I'm sure I could do it if I was forced to, but, but it would be, it would be rough. And I, I think so, like some of these people who do these netty or not videos and, and this type of content, like you get the feeling that, I mean, that, that's kind of their level. <laughs> like it's, they they are fully authentic while doing it because like that's the kind of stuff they are thinking about at home or whatever like but but with some people like greg Doucette, if if you watch him on someone else's podcast or something i mean he does seem like a pretty intelligent guy like he he's a smart dude so i'm sure he finds this sort of content pathetic as hell and he's just doing it because he's a ruthless businessman and he's just playing the game as it as it should be played and i i mean that that must be really tough. I mean, I, I I don't know if he has just insane levels of conscientiousness or he's just numbing his his own feelings about what he's doing. But th this is this is what I find just really hard to imagine. Like, what what's the thought process behind? Like, okay, I'm gonna sit down here, do some absolute trash. I borderline think I'm harming the world with this shit, but hey, it works. Like, how must that be? I don't know. Yeah, I think um, I think he just really really likes money <laughs> that's, that's what it is. and some people are like that and they often do really really well in business because not that many people are super driven to take that road and you know for whatever reason he's chosen to go down that way and yeah i get the vibe that he doesn't really care about the videos that he makes he doesn't even watch them before he puts them out you know he says he just throws them off to the editor it gets uploaded then he sees sort of what the result is after um, I mean, I couldn't imagine doing that. If I'm putting something out, of course, I'm watching it. I'm, I'm the one editing it before it goes out, right? So it's um, it's just some people are okay with doing that. And um, 
yeah, it really is just a business to them. It's just to make money. Um, and I'm sure there's some videos of his that he puts out that he is interested in, right? Because he puts out so many videos that, you know, there's a mix of stuff. But I'm sure there's some videos that are just to get views, for sure. It's, it's terrifying that we got to this point because I agree also that I, I like Greg still to this day, even with all that he's done, because I still remember what he used to be. He had a channel for seven years before he blew up. And it's only with the Nelly or Not videos that he got massive. So it, it's true. It's tough to throw the first stone because I can understand how frustrating it must be to sit there making good videos and get absolutely nowhere. And you see all of these other dudes who make garbage videos and the algorithm just eats it up. At some point, you're like, hey, you know what? Like, integrity doesn't pay my bills. I have to get it done. But then it always goes too far because these people are not struggling. Like, Greg is not in the ruins trying to gather, like, clams or whatever to feed his dogs. He has millions. He's doing very well in life. So I understand that entertainment and making money is part of life. I understand that not everyone can, can do it the way I do it. I have a job on the side. It's not like I subsist off of oxygen. But it, I think, went to a point where now we have this merchant mentality where YouTube fitness channels are just shops, just a big shop, and you just want people to get in the shop and buy something before they leave. So you'll do whatever it takes, which also means that the videos don't really matter anymore. It's why Nelly or Nuts are so garbage. They don't care about the quality. What matters is you get people to click. Once people have clicked, it's too late. You have their click, you have the algorithm on your side, and maybe, just maybe, one of them is going to stick around and buy one of your product, and you have one. It's not about the information anymore. And this is why this platform is now pure entertainment. There should have been a balance, but it's not 50-50 on this platform. It's a nice 90 to maybe 85, 15 or 10 split where information is being shoved to the side. The algorithm doesn't like that or doesn't care about it. Because the average person cares about being entertained. They like pleasure. It's much better. So to rebound on and echo on what Abel was saying, yes, these videos are mediocre, but like Nietzsche would say, we need mediocre YouTubers for mediocre people. And since the average person is mediocre, that's what works. I think, um, and this I can kind of personalize this a little bit, but it's interesting when I look at you guys, uh, Jeff and, and, and H, because... And correct me if I'm wrong, NH, but you, you don't have any real income coming from the channel, right? In terms of you don't monetize and you don't coach. Is that right? Zero. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and then Jeff, you've more or less made this your career. So in that sense, they're opposite of the spectrums. And yet you both had similar growth. You both have similar viewers. You both kind of maintain that general integrity, even though, so like, I think Jeff, even though you are getting the income from it, you've shown that that doesn't necessarily have to change you. Right. Um, but I guess in defense of Greg a little bit, uh, and this is something I thought of with me, it's, you know, just as humans, and, and we all know this, right, you're, you're driven by positive feedback, right? And you get that dopamine hit and it moves you forward to continue that action. And I've even found this, like, even though my channel's monetized, the, what comes in from this channel, uh, almost all of it goes to charity and does not, and even if it didn't, it, it would not move the needle of my overall income it just is it's really not a factor and yet even though i know that i'm still influenced by like when i see oh i made this kind of post it got three times the likes as you know something else this video got way more it's like okay that makes me then want to make more of those and i have to actually sit down and like like think to myself wait a minute but but why those views don't actually do much for me other than just give me more views which is i guess its own 
positive thing, but it's not like it, it's not like tangibly changing my life, if that makes sense, because again, it's not my career. So I just think that's just, we're so hardwired to go with that. And so with Greg, even though you could say, well, do you need more money? Maybe not. But how do you then back off? Yeah. yeah, because to go in reverse is really hard. Like I know a lot of doctors who, a doctor I was supposed to take over for years ago, um, one of the reasons that didn't happen, he just couldn't retire. He was supposed to retire at this age. And then it was another year, it was another year, it was another year. Well, because when he retires, he goes from doctor, this guy to just old guy sitting around, right? Nobody likes to see themselves kind of their status deflate. And so if, if Greg, you said stops, he will slowly become irrelevant. And especially in this industry, we know how quickly people become irrelevant. I mean, you, you stop making videos for two months and people don't even talk about you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, Ooh, fuck. and to be clear, I don't monetize the channel. Um, I did for like a month back in 2020, but I stopped. I saw, I just, I didn't want to have ads on the channel. I might start them up again at some point, but I, I don't have them on there now. I also don't do sponsored videos. I've had a lot of people reach out to me, but I saw a video by the Bioneer and he's, he says he has sponsored videos. And he has to send the sponsor of the video and have them sign off on it and stuff like that. I just don't want to, mm. that just not sound palatable to me. Um, and so I just coach and then I have the books as well. But it, it does change things because you know that if you get people in the door and then you mention a product, you're going to sell some. And it almost doesn't matter what the video is. It just matters that people show up. And so you'll notice that people will start to push products first in the video. I usually keep it till the end, maybe once in the middle very briefly. But nowadays you have sponsored videos. It's always in the first like three or four minutes of the video because they want to maximize you know, the, the sales of whatever they're plugging. And so, you know, it is tough when you're trying to make a living from it. And that can absolutely influence decisions on the type of content that you put out. And um, it is super competitive. And, you know, I understand why some channels make the decisions that they make. And it is about striking that balance to where, you know, your people are showing up, but it's still educational. And that's where I do notice both Greg and Derek, they do make an effort to try to make it educational. And Derek, they've both been very open about, hey, yeah, I clickbait. Yeah, I try to get people here. But when they are here, I try to actually make the content informational because I think Derek specifically said, hey, when I made content that just was informational, no one showed up. So he'll, he'll get them in there with a natty or not and then talk about you know, the stuff that he wants to talk about. So yeah. I, I mean, I get it. Cool. Um, now, Abel, you had mentioned that you had some, I, I have some other stuff here, but you had mentioned there was at least a couple of topics that you wanted to touch on. Anything specific? I, I think we can, if, if you have topics, then I think we can go with yours because mine is like, it's almost like it would just change the entire conversation too much. So okay. I think we're in um, Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is definitely a transition in topics here, which is, um, Jeff, I think you, I don't know if you made a post or we were just chatting about it, but it was along the lines of, of like, you know, the, the um, evidence-based fitness industry and, and whatnot and how uh, more and more you almost lean away from it that, you know, as far as like the studies, uh, how applicable are they? Um, and something I was telling Brian Borstein and Abel uh, yesterday is like it, when I like, I'm, so I'm a fan of all like the 3DMJ guys and the mass research review. I'm subscribed and I, I talk about it. I like all those guys, but for me at this point, 
you know, just having done it for so long, it's not like you learn something like a new every single time, right? Probably 90% or more of what you read is, is similar. And then you, you know, glean some new things. But if I just ran through like this month, I could show you, like, I could say, okay, this one, the conclusion was, we don't really know. This conclusion was, this didn't make a difference. This conclusion was anything above this pretty low amount of protein is fine. Like basically so many things are either, it doesn't matter we don't have enough information or we already knew this for a really long time. Right. And, and so, um, and then, you know, based on why research is published and whatnot, it just ends up being that so much research is on, uh, on individuals that maybe it doesn't necessarily apply to us. So I, I guess I just wanted to kind of see what your progression was over the years of have you mostly just gone with what you find works for you? Or are you guys still applying things you find in new studies or where does that apply to your training and, and importantly, your clients? Yeah, so I actually recorded a video titled something like why I'm no longer evidence-based. Nice and juicy clickbait, right? Um, but I felt like I went a little bit too hard. I mean, I went I went excessively <laughs> hard against science because I, I still think it's it's useful. I'm also subscribed to Mass. You know, I, I consume a lot of science-based content. But it is definitely not as useful when you're more advanced because a lot of your own experiences are just going to either be completely flying in the face of research or they're going to be aligned with it to the point where it's not even useful. It's just telling you what you already know. Um, you know, so if you have a study that says, Oh, 45 sets of quads per week is better than 30. Uh, you know, it's, I, I guess like, am I going to go out and squat for 45 sets per week? Well, no, because I already tried that when the study came out. And so it's one of those things where I've gradually gotten away from it, at least in terms of using it for practical recommendations. I think it is kind of another buzzword, right? Like you put science in the title or it's in the channel or something and it'll do better. It'll do better. Even if it's the same exact recommendation, like a, a science-based three by 10 is still a three by 10, you know, it's just, it's just used to get eyeballs from people who don't really necessarily know exactly what science is i guess yeah 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 that's i think that's 100 percent accurate science nowadays on this platform is just a marketing term it is completely disconnected from the practice the noble practice of science and if you stop people and you ask them hey what's science exactly can you explain to me what science is they wouldn't be able to tell you they would tell you oh it's the truth science means it's true no science means it's been scientifically proven via a method and the method can be debunked it's not true or wrong and this is the reason why whenever you see a YouTuber put backed by science or proved by science in the title, you know every single time that it's false. And there are some people that I respect that are evidence-based, quote-unquote, like Jeff Nippert, great guy, actually knows how to read studies, knows how to summarize studies for his viewers. But then the rest, like look at, since this is, this is a drama, like meta, physical, whatever YouTube video, look at Ryan Humiston. The guy three months ago started to put back by science in the title of his video. He realized it works really well. He got millions of views and like a good dog, he wanted more meat. He wanted more steaks. So what does he do? Well, new series back by science. I watched one of the video. It's backed by absolutely nothing but his own brain. It's just <laughs> him saying, oh, studies prove that. If I want to go on Google right now, I can find you a study that proves that leg extensions without going to failure every time, uh, 15 times a day is more 
anabolic or hypertrophic for the quads, then squat. I can find you that study. You can always find what you want once you let your, let your own bias decide what you enter into Google. So you can prove whatever you want, then put backed by science, and it works. And the worst thing about this is that it prostitutes science because then you end up with people who are going to follow bullshit science or who are going to distrust it and to go back on Humiston's case recently he put out a video with back by science in the title the video flunked so what did he do change the thumbnail changed the title what does it mean it means that there was no science in the video if he can change the entire title there was no science in the video it's only clickbait but until these people are being called out by people who actually do their homework it's never going to stop because again clicks clicks is what matters yeah, I mean, just just uh, just yesterday with um, Brian, well, I, I, he said it so well. Like, evidence based fitness is now nihilistic fitness or something like that. Mm -hmm. It was it was so well said, and we were just laughing because, like, so far the the um, storyline was or the narrative that was like kind of coming out from all these studies was basically nothing matters in training except for training volume. But now, finally, it seems like even training volume doesn't matter. So finally, <laughs> finally, we, we knocked down the last man standing. Right. But um, <laughs> it's um, honestly, it's it's been kind of a, a process for me that I, I could become a bit more consistent about this in my head because it started off with a couple of studies that just bothered me, like the 45 sets a week study. Like just everything about it was like so anti anti life like what actually happens in the real world that like i was forced to actually like look into what they actually did here which i like most people who like to say they are evidence-based i didn't really actually read into studies i was just like abstract or someone posted a study result or something and when i looked into it and it's like okay like it has a ton of flaws for which we cannot really extrapolate anything from this and then i had to realize that okay if if I have this kind of scrutiny for this study, then I guess I should have it for all the others as well. So, I mean, at this point, you know, like 10 sets, that's, that's like a good starting point for most people. Like that's what we say in training. And, but, but why? Because of a meta analysis, because like, I can guarantee you like that must have a ton of flaws as well. Like look at like how many studies are in it, like how good were they, those studies, probably a bunch of them were crap. So, and that was actually one of the mass things this month was Eric Trex are talking about how most meta analyses are, yeah, yeah, they're actually pretty flawed a lot of the time, which is true, yeah. right? So, especially in fitness, yeah. And yeah. you know, in, in the case of that, it's probably sorry, Jeff, I'm gonna let you talk in one second, just like that's probably actually good advice because we have a ton of anecdotes that kind of like also speak to that. So, like, for me at this point, like, science is almost like the last piece, like, so if like there are some successful coaches and a lot of trainees who use some kind of a method and it worked. That's great. And it matters a lot to me at this point. And if it also happens to be confirmed by the majority of the studies, then great. Like it, it, it's a good bonus, but it's not that important to me at this point, honestly. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you don't know what was going on in the Schoenfeld studies, don't feel that bad because Schoenfeld also didn't really seem to know what was going on in the studies. Oh yeah, my lab assistants—they were dealing with all that stuff. I, I don't—I didn't actually go to the training sessions. Yeah, um, and I—I I think it's one just of those. Re real quick, Jeff, I just wanted to just on that um, relevant note. It's just so when I was in my undergrad and I did research under the editor in chief of the Journal of Strength and Conditioning, who's had like hundreds of published studies and whatnot. 
really smart guy, really great guy. Uh, we're still in communication. So I basically helped run some of these studies. And I can tell you that that is definitely true. Actually, he uh, kind of oversaw Brad Schoenfeld when Brad Schoenfeld was getting his PhD. So um, like, you know, very uh, in the field kind of guy, also like a 675 deadlift. So somebody who actually, you know, practices what they preach. Uh, but the point just being that when I was doing these studies, I can tell you that it was basically me, you know, and like the two other people running it. And it was just like, all right, some of these people who it was where they were squatting, I had to teach them how to squat, right? So it's like, is this relevant to us when I'm trying to show them how to not fall over during a squat? And I'm not trying to say all studies are like that, um, or, or, you know, no research is relevant. I'm just saying, I, I can speak to the kind of, uh, I, I guess, the kind of studies that are done in some of these college populations. Yeah, and I, I think it'll vary a lot, right? We got that study on, oh, the, the seated hamstring curl is better than the lying hamstring curl. But how were they doing it? Because I know that I can do a lying hamstring curl and get just as much of a stretch if I do it in a certain way. Like if I tilt my pelvis anteriorly as I go into the stretch position, I can get just as good of a stretch. And it, it depends on exactly how you do it. Plus the environment of the study. You don't know who's running it, how hard these people are being pushed, et cetera. And so it's just really hard to think that there's any kind of consistency, particularly when these people are training to failure. And I increasingly get questions from usually beginners where they are just, I can tell they're just paralyzed. Like they, they want to know the optimal solution, the best solution before they even get into the gym. And so I just say, try it. Like, why don't you just try this? Why don't you do something and work hard at it and then make adjustments over time? But people have lost the ability to do that. And I realize that they're just coming to me to get me to sign off on this. And th these are not clients. These are just random, random people. They want me to sign off of, on it or give them something that is going to be better, but without knowing them or knowing their training history, there's just no way to give these recommendations. Like I got a message the other day is 19 sets too many for lats. <laughs> I mean, that was it. That was the extent of the information that I got. And just get a baseline of work. I like Alexander Bromley's take on this. Get in a baseline of work, see how you're recovering, see how you feel, see how you're progressing, and then adjust as needed. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Just see what you respond best to. And there, there was a, a very big science-based content creator who said that there's like no way to tell your progress. There's no way. So, oh, if you said this exercise is good for your biceps, how do you know? Because you won't be able to tell the measurements. And I get that. But the idea that you have no way to tell what is working for you without science, I find to be absolutely ridiculous, particularly because every single study is going to be on other people. And so people are thinking that studies on other people is more important than their own experiences in the gym. People are just losing the ability to be observant, to just know how something feels do you prefer this or this or this rep range to this uh, or some other exercise? Like we get a lot of data when we're in the gym. It's not always written down, but we're always feeling something. And that is information. Anything you experience is still data. It's still information. It might not be in a logbook, but it's still something that has value for you in your decision-making process and something that you can use instinctively. That might not be as marketable, but it's a hell of a lot more useful. Yeah, it is. It is.
boom, mic drop. What, what you do in your life, and that that should be obvious to people. Data coming from your own training is always more valuable than data coming from a study always because it's it's actually pertinent to you. But we see now with this science-based environment that people are losing the ability to think. And you could say, well, that's paradoxical. Science should make people smarter. I don't think it's doing that. I think it's replacing their brain. Now they want someone else to tell them, oh, this is going to work for you, but that doesn't exist. So now the, the crux and the core of what makes a good lifter, the personal experience, disappears and is replaced by something else. And that something else is irrelevant because when I look at what science-based, evidence-based fitness has done to this platform, I don't see monsters. I don't see people who are built by science. I don't see Frankensteins. I see small dudes who are going to stay small for the rest of their life because they're always afraid to fail. They're always afraid to follow a practice that is not 100% optimal. But optimal doesn't exist. It's, it's a buzzword. It's all about marketing. It's nonsense. And the people that push these ideas at some point have to be questioned also on their intention. Because I think that saying that science is becoming nihilistic is genius. I don't remember who said that. Abel, you said that. Because it's exactly, what's, it's, it's exactly what's happening. It should have been something that would reinforce people's skepticism and their ability to think critically. And we got the exact opposite. Now the skepticism that, that we have is like a black hole. It, dev it devours everything. So someone will say, well, frequency actually doesn't matter. I saw a guy make that post saying, oh, he apologized to, to his subscriber saying, oh, two years ago, I told you that you were supposed to look at your own fatigue and recovery and base the number of sets and the number of days of turning off of that. I was wrong and I'm sorry. You should only train one time a week and any, anything above that is useless and it's proven by science. And I took a step back and I thought, okay, this is not April's fall. It's not, it's not the first of the month for the month of April. You're actually being serious right now. You're actually saying that whatever that new study that came out that caught your eye is more relevant than the personal experience of your, of your followers. How did you get to that point? Well, he got to that point because his brain has been replaced by science. And now it's, again, that nothing matters. So this guy will say that intensity doesn't really matter. You can train at 45% and you get the same gains. This guy will say that volume doesn't matter. You can cut your sets in half and you'll get the same gains. Anyone who stepped in the gym knows that's bullshit. We know it's bullshit, but people who just got started don't because they have no baseline of information to understand what is or isn't real. And since they'll never be able to develop that logic, they'll stay at the same level forever, which I guess is the point because that way they can continuously consume more studies, but they will never become good lifter, never. You can go ahead, Abel, and then I have a uh, point to make. Yeah, no, just a random point. Like, I remember watching NH's uh, video on, um, like, the fitness YouTubers review, and and you did one on on uh, Mike Israel and, like, the parasocial, like, what's going on with him. And I think you said something along the lines of, like, his fanboys are the worst because they think that just because they are fanboying a science individual, they are smart. And I mean, that, that's, that, that's so well put because I think part of the reason why evidence-based became a hot thing is because it makes people feel better about themselves for being fanboys. Like it, when you're like uh, worshiping, uh, like that, that big guy that you mentioned who is putting like built, like, uh, backed by science in his videos like someone like that or a Greg Doucette, like a lot of people still feel a little bit uneasy that like, man, like, who am I? Like, I don't have my own like independent thinking. Like I need to be looking at this person as, as a God. But if it's a science-based person, then it's like, well, I'm just trying to educate myself. So it makes them feel a bit better. So it's, 
uh, just a yeah. different aspect. Um, so I have a general point about these statements, but then also a specific question for you, Jeff, is I know like, cause here you're, you're talking about how important it is based on, you know, how you feel this exercise works for you and whatnot. I'm wondering if this is counter then to maybe a year or two ago. I know like you've mentioned specifically some of your videos, Mike Isertel, that you like him, but that a lot of his recommendations are not evidence-based and not maybe science-based, like for instance, the pump and whatnot. Does this then indicate that maybe you don't feel as strongly about that or is that a different point? It's something I've kind of reconsidered because his metrics for what makes a good exercise or, you know, how much volume to do. I mean, there's a lot of holes in how he explains it. For example, like, oh, if you don't get a pump by four sets, do a fifth and a sixth set. Like, if I don't get a pump by four sets, I don't think a fifth set is magically yeah. going to, like, explode my arms. But I do think a lot of his proxies are pretty good. The, the exercises that tend to get you sore are often going to be the ones that are good for hypertrophy. Not always. You shouldn't chase soreness. You shouldn't you know, go out of your way to try to get it. But I also think if not his metrics, then what? So if you're not going based on disruption, perturbation, soreness, pump, et cetera, what do you go off of? Right, like the meta-analysis, EMG, like it's if it's not that, then what? And so I, I think it's easy to criticize his methods, and I have in the past. And again, I do think there are significant issues with it in some cases, but I think overall, that is a pretty decent way to judge an exercise. Like you won't always get a pump, you won't always get soreness, but again, compared to what? Like how else are you gonna tell? what is working, especially when you're more advanced, you do a certain exercise, you're not going to know if it grows your arms in terms of measurements or in terms of, you know, cross-sectional area or ultrasound or whatever. You're not going to know for like three months, six months, a year, right? So when you're advanced, I don't, I don't see how you could go off of anything else, just getting stronger, I guess. But if you're getting stronger on a shitty exercise, is that really doing a whole lot? So yeah, it's one of those things yeah. where I'm, I've kind of warmed to his methods in a lot of cases. Another one is rep range. Like he used to say five to 10 was low reps, 10 to 20 moderate reps, 20 to 30 high reps. And I was thinking, you know, five to 10, that's not really low reps, right? Like that's, that's more moderate than anything. But I think in the context of being very, very strong and being quite risk averse, it kind of makes sense, right? A lot of these enhanced lifters, they want to be a little bit more conservative with how they program. And I think in that sense, the recommendations are reasonable. They just might be might need to be shifted a little bit for natural lifters. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely fair because, and you know, you guys know I worked with Steve Hall and there were certain things I would tell him, like, you know, I don't know if this particular aspect is like, I'll, I'll do it for the sake of coaching experiment, but I don't know if it's changing much, but with the soreness, I mean, this is another example, I think where people take it too far where they they'll hear, Oh, you know, soreness isn't maybe correlated with hypertrophy, but it's like, yeah, but if you literally don't feel it in that muscle and you were never yeah. sore, then it's probably not a great exercise for you. Like if I do a new exercise now, obviously, you know, like pull-ups don't get me sore because I I've done pull-ups once or twice a week for 15 years, but if I do a new exercise, or even if I stop doing pull-ups for a month for whatever reason, I get back into it. 
yeah, I'm really sore in, in that area, but in my back or, you know, whatever I'm trying to do. So there should be some level of being able to feel it, you know, um, to slightly counter, I guess the, somebody should focus on just what works for them piece. The only concern I have with that is that this is where I think you, you have to look at all things because we, we all know whether it's because you're new to training or you started gear or whatever it is, you can do a lot of things that are not necessarily contributing, right? Like how many people less so now, but certainly back in years past, this supplement is working for me. Well, look at my results, right? This, they, they don't think about breaking down this one thing. You know, I think a lot of us, we, we try one variable, we introduce one exercise, but a lot of people, they, they throw the kitchen sink at it. This works. And this is how we have people who, who maybe aren't even fraudulent, but genuinely believe this kind of BS thing is working for them. Right. So you have to be careful with always interpreting your own results. Yeah. yeah this is, I'm sorry. Supplement. Oh, go ahead, Beth. Thank you, thank you. Um, this is where I think science, when properly used, can be useful is because, yes, it allows you to separate the stimulus and know exactly which one did what. But it also is the case that at some point you're going to just have to take the gains, right? Sometimes when you're more advanced, you do like five things. If you can cut down two and focus on the three that work the best, you'll get, you'll get better results. That's evident. But that mindset of always cutting down and saying, okay, only the best, only the best, that is what leads to minimalism. And usually what happens back th at that point is that you realize that, yeah, maybe you managed to salvage the one exercise that is the best for you, but you could have kept others, right? Not everything has to be optimal. You can keep things that are not going to be the best, but that still are going to actually contribute to your gains. And it's because every single exercise for a muscle group adds up and it's the total percentage that matters. So if you have one that's 75% and two at 20%, which is above 100%, of course, you would still be better off doing the three in total, it's not like the two at 20% take away from the one at 75%. And everyone knows that the more advanced you become, the more volume you need, the more variety in the lifts you're going to have to use. So that's the point where it makes a ton of sense. For a novice, however, it might not. Because you can have one group, one lift for one muscle group and see great results. So for them, it's relevant. But the more you progress, the less relevant it's going to be. And this is when personal experience comes, comes into play. Well Any thoughts, Abel? I mean, you don't, don't feel like you have to give thoughts. I just didn't want to, you know, even a little quiet there. So, <laughs> no, I, you actually addressed exactly what I wanted to say. Like, it's, it's, it's tough to tell what actually works for you in the long term by looking at what worked in the past. And it's, it's, it's easy to get nostalgic about something that worked previously. Um, so it, it is good to have some sort of external validation of some kind, like whether it's studies. Um, like sometimes I think about like, what would be the best resource I could give for myself when I started? Um, and I mean, if I could have had something like Eric's video series, like the muscle and strength pyramids that gives me like a nice overview, so like a general understanding. And then I could have just listened to my, or, or observed my own progress that that could have been probably enough. Um, but probably the, the best knowledge is for people like I don't know, like like Jeff Alberts or someone who coached a lot of people and could see like the response of a ton of different people and observe that over a long period of time. I would actually expect that like they would be able to actually put together a program for someone that is gonna be the most likely to work out of out of everyone. Like successful lifter, scientists, and someone like him, I would probably bet on him. Yeah. Yeah. Um 
I also think science is pretty good for debunking supplements because of the placebo effect. Like you have to be comparing it to an actual placebo in order to see. Um, you mentioned Eric Helms as well, and he actually put out a really good video on this topic. It's on the Iron Culture podcast saying, I think the title was something like, science won't tell you what to train on a Tuesday. And it's, it's going through a lot of this and sort of like a defense of science. And it's part of the reason why I didn't put out the video of you know why I'm not evidence-based because I filmed that, then I watched his video, then I was like, then I felt kind of bad because I went too hard. And so I was going to film an intro to it just, you know, softening the video a little bit, but, uh, but it is a good, um, it is a good watch if anyone is interested. Yeah. And that's why, you know, like I said, we, we can have all these complaints about, I think most of us are just pretty moderate people, right? So we, we see people going extreme on the side of science or extreme on the anti-science and it's like, it, it has its own utility. I think another issue that comes in with using personal anecdote, and we, we've all seen this plenty of times is when People assume that, you know, either what is working or even more so maintaining their current physique at 10 plus years is fine to get them there, right? This is something I talk about with myself frequently. I have at times gone down to four sets per week per body part and had one of my most successful cuts ever, right? Maintain pretty much peak strength throughout. I saw John Meadows talking about how he went down to 100 grams of protein and was still maintaining 220 lean. Now he was on TRT, but still he, that was his current anecdote. Um, uh, plenty of other examples, but specifically with like training volume, we know how much lower it can be. I had even just recently, I had um, an injury I was kind of working around. So I, I went a little bit easy on legs. And then it was the day after Thanksgiving. And like my first time doing what I had done a month ago, and I hit PRs for that workout. And it's like, so I could say, well, guys, hey, take a month off between hard leg sessions, right? So what works for you now, and again, especially what maintains for you now is not necessarily what's best for people who are trying to gain. And um, we, we see so many people who like they, they forget what got them there, you know, and, and now they do all these different things. And it's just they it's very easy to just kind of focus on that recency bias. Yeah, that, that amnesia I find is, is fascinating. When you see dudes who build their physics off of progressive overload, compound movements, and then they turn around and say, okay, this isolation movement with like 20 pounds is going to make you big. Is the guy a liar or does he actually believe it at this point? It's tough to know. What I find hilarious is when you have optimal gurus that look at this and say, okay, I'm going to take that one exercise and I'm going to bet my life on it that it's going to make me big. And then they say, well, since this is the best, why do anything else, right? Why do pull-ups if you can do single-hand pull-downs with 20 pounds and fill the squeeze? Well, it's because you won't actually build a massive lat with this. Both would work. Both would actually function, but not one and not the other. But since people like one answer and they like absolutes, this is why I think people are like this with science. They provide what people want. They provide an absolute answer that is going to work 100% of the time. Is it actually going to work? No. Because I think that most of lifting is absurd. Sometimes things work and you don't know why. And it's also always personal. Like like you said, you can go on like very low protein intensity results. I spent three years eating, I think, 50 to 60 grams of proteins a day. I made gains. Mm. I gained muscle. 
does it mean that everyone needs to reduce their protein intake immediately? No, it just means that it works for me. So I tell people, hey, give it a try. See if maybe it works for you. Maybe you're like me, maybe not. But I will never sit there and tell people, well, my way is the only way because clearly it works for me. We would expect that everyone would be like this, but some people like the self-awareness. So if for them a lift works, this must mean it works for every single human. And this is when you get people who say, well, conventional deadlift or bust. If you can't pull conventional, screw you. Like you, you have to pull conventional. No, it's a hip hinge. It's nothing special. It works the armstrings, the glutes, and the posterior chain. There are millions of lifts that can replace it. And just because it worked for you doesn't mean that it's going to work for other people. So just don't spread misinformation. Yeah, it's it's actually a mindful. I just actually, it's great that you brought up the pull up thing because, um, so I saw your video that. Uh, by the way, can you can you tell me who that person is that you're shitting on with the biomechanics stuff? I'm so interested. Never, <laughs> never. You know why? It's because it doesn't matter who that guy is because he's he's an Star archetype. It's it starts with no letters, my friend. It's it doesn't matter who that guy is because what matters is his what he preaches. There's a million of this guy. All right, I can cite you a million of these guys. That's 160 true. pounds, no muscles, says the same things. Interchangeable individuals. What must be destroyed is the ideology. Yeah, but um, so what's interesting is that um, so if I go under your video, I will see tons of comments saying like like yeah like it, this is nonsense like pull-ups worked better for me than anything else but the thing is that if i go under the walls of one of these optimal exercise selection guys i will also see a ton of comments saying like so true like pull-ups never did jack shit for me like it did totally like this works better than anything else so like for someone newcomer like this would be a complete like minefield like okay what, what do i actually do and uh it's i don't know at, at a certain point, like you just kind of got to get lucky so that you, you stumble onto the right person and, and like start kind of blindly following them. And then hopefully you will kind of um, come up with, or you will actually finally find out who the right person actually was in retrospect. And hopefully you were lucky. So, or, or you can use your critical thinking skills, apply what people say, and then based on the results, you decide if there are correct or not because that's what you pointed out is correct it's possible that someone will do pull-ups and never see results it's possible it's also possible that another exercise that looks suboptimal is going to be better for them but the only way for them to know that is to try i think that the difference and maybe i'm being a little bit arrogant here is that the difference between my subscribers and the people who like optimal gurus is that my subscribers actually train so they can base it off of evidence i know these types these are the types that couldn't hack it in lifting for a reason or another. So they resort to science and theory because it's easier to read books and to cite studies. It does not mean that they're correct. If anything, they should be regarded with suspicion. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I used to be a teacher. I'm still a teacher. So I don't really like that quote, but those that can't do or can't make it in the field, teach it. Right. It yeah. sort of applies also in lifting. You have a subculture of people who are not really in it to train. They're in it to talk about training. Are these people the ones you should follow for information, evidence-based information? I don't know because the evidence is never applied. So the theory is never applied in practice. It sounds good in theory again, but a paper is just a paper. What matters is what works. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's funny how the optimal exercises are always easier. Every single time, they're easier. They take less effort. Uh, literally 100% of the time.
It's because they have um, a better stimulus ratio, Geoff. That's why. <laughs> yeah. This is... Uh, honestly, that, that's what I said. I made a post or a video about this a year ago, I think. It was like right before working with Steve. And, and what I said was, you know, we, we can talk about how cheating form and all this stuff and, and like, oh, they're, they're, they, they make it sound as if it's an easy way out. And I said, okay, so like, let's take a barbell curl and you, you could do 100 pounds for 10 reps and you do that strict or you do that cheating. Well, if you're using the same weight, then obviously cheating is going to be easier. But cheating form, and I'm not advocating for cheating form, but I'm just saying if you were to then say, oh, but I'm going to do cheat reps, I'm going to do 135 pounds for 10 that is a much harder exercise. I used to do curls with 65 pound dumbbells and I would hoist it up. And now I do strict curls with 45 pounds and it's a lot easier now. So I'm just saying that like, it's like, yeah. So just kind of going with, with your point, Jeff, is that it's not necessarily um, always about like what's easier. Cause I know your form and not that you have bad form, Jeff, but I know you will go towards like some looser form of certain exercises. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, and so people were like, oh, like the cheating is just easier. It's not easier. It's harder. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's significantly harder, especially if you're doing it the right way and using it to go beyond failure rather than just, oh, it's getting kind of hard. I guess I'll cheat more. So if you, if you do it right, it is significantly more challenging. Um, and I follow a guy on Instagram, Izzy Nerevez, the, the powerlifting to win guy. Um, oh, he's, he's still around. He's getting yeah, he's he's gone enhanced and he's he's a monster. He's he's huge. Really? But I watch his, his training videos on Instagram, his stories, and you know, he says that cheat reps have better stimulus to fatigue ratio. And I think in some cases that's true because it's possible that they're stimulating, they're getting a level of stimulus that a strict rep just never could. For example, how many sets of leg extensions would it take? to equal a squat. Well, in some cases, there's just no amount of leg extensioning that can get you the same results. It's just, it's just not as good of a movement, right? And so I think, especially when you're more advanced, super strict form might limit the loading and the tension and the activation. Well, maybe you'll get more activation in terms of BMG, another issue there. But in terms of just the stress on the muscle, even a slight cheat allows you to use a lot more weight on some movements. And I think you're just getting so much more stimulus that the extra fatigue is almost negligible. Like it's still a better deal in so many ways. And we're getting into very advanced topics now, but I guess that the people that actually survived this talk to this point are going to really enjoy what's going on right now. I think that stimulus to fatigue ratio is another such term that is very important for training but that is now gimmicky and a buzzword because most people don't understand it. And I think that a good way to tell if the person is going to give you good information based on this is to try to figure out if in their heads, fatigue and stimulus are separated variables. Because I hear some people say that and it's like, fatigue bad, but stimulus good. So we want to reduce fatigue as much as possible, but fatigue is what gives you the stimulus. They're not good or bad, they're the same thing. It's just that you reach a point where the threshold of the stimulus exceeds what the muscles can take and now you accumulate fatigue what type of fatigue well tendon fatigue skeletal fatigue nervous system fatigue okay all of that can be bad because if you accumulate too much you get injured or you, you cannot actually push the muscle anymore so that's what it actually means then you look at someone who tells you that cheek reps give you more stimulus possibly 
But what what lift are we talking about, right? Are we talking cheat curls? Are we talking cheat good mornings? Are we talking, what are we talking about? Like, this is what matters because this advice can give good gains for one person and really humbly, uh, really severely injure someone else. So it always goes back to the individual. And it's always good to be a tiny bit skeptical when someone tells you this, because now I think you have this separation between meatheads who train hard all the time, always train hard, always go to failure. The form doesn't matter. Technique doesn't matter. Just push. And you have, um, what, what term can I use without being particularly incorrect? Wimps? Yeah. Wimps <laughs> on nerds who say, no, 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 that doesn't matter. Get, get, just get the stimulus. We don't want the fatigue. Just do this exercise that is going to give you like that right angle. There's that in between, right? We want fatigue and stimulus both because they are the same thing. And it's, it's, why are we at a point where we have to make a choice again? Why do I have to be on one camp and not the other? Can I be a smart meathead? Can I be an educated barbarian? Or am I going to be rejected by both camps because I refuse to pick a side? Uh, Dave, do you need to jump like right at this moment or? No, no, I'm good until like 9.45, 10 probably. I'm okay. Can, can I um, just make a very awkward segue slash just one question on the pull-ups thing still? Go for it. Yeah, so just I'm I'm curious because like uh, I find that when people say pull up and chin up, like all of them use it like they name completely different things often. So when you say pull ups, do you? When I say pull ups, I mean like a wide grip or slightly outside shoulder width. When I say chin up, it's either neutral grip or supinated narrower grip. Uh, how do you guys use it? Yes, sir. Yeah, See? yeah. I, I never do wide grip pull-ups, but I, I always do shoulder grip, or, or sorry, I always do shoulder width and then a pronated grip. And then I don't really ever do supinated. It's always either, if I do neutral, then it's it's a little bit closer, but that's largely just because that's where most places, ha you know, the, the neutral option is, is a little bit closer, um, which I'm a little stronger with neutral grip, but almost negligible, probably because I've done pronated so much at this point. Yeah, so um, so I watched uh, NH's recent video on, um, or well, I guess I should talk to you. So NH, I watched your recent video on the LAT tier list. Mm -hmm. And based on my like past year's education on the topic, I basically agreed with like everything. The only thing where I was surprised that you put it to the Yu-Gi-Oh, whatever tier, like the, the best, best lifts um, was the, was the, was the pull up. If you're talking about a wide grip one, because um, that's one lift that I've always done, like for the past, like, I don't know, seven years, basically, that's one lift that I always had there consistently. And like, looking back now, I never felt like my lat super well on those, except at the bottom. So I do always got like a good contraction here, but like, I just never felt like a very good stretch from that. If I think back and my lats, I would say were kind of a, a lagging area for me. I had like good upper back. Like like good rear delts, uh, rhomboids, mid traps, like like those things were well developed, but 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 lats not so much. And now, if I think of it, like a slightly kind of diagonal angle, narrower grip, chin up, that hits uh, my lats. Like I can actually feel it being stretched. Um, so so, do you feel a good stretch on a pull up um, at the bottom? How 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 does it go for you? So there are two things that come into play here. One, it's your structure. Want to build the same? Your arms don't insert into the shoulder socket the same way that mine do. And two, um, the technique. 
So I do what some people would say, partial reps, pull-ups. My scapula is always engaged and I never, ever go into a dead end because I think that yeah. for most people, what ends up happening is that you now have to re-engage your upper back to start pulling or you start pulling with your arms. And I find that with a wide grip, it's very easy to start pulling with the arm and not with the back. It takes some time to develop the connection with the lat in that position. And if you don't, yeah, you're going to feel maybe a stretch of the long head more than you will feel the stretch of the lat, and that will never get you any results. So in that case, you can either say, well, I want to go back to it and practice it, or you can stick to what works. Diagonal pulls actually do function, and they do, quote-unquote, align with the fibers of the lats more. But I have found that with pull-ups, to go back to the stimulus to fatigue ratio, if you do them properly, you will not feel your tendons, you will not feel your biceps, you will not feel your forearms. The only thing you will feel is the the back stretching and contracting as if the, as if the arms were just ropes. And if, if you can find that one pull-up stance or form that you can fill them on, I find that after that, making it spread and carry out to the other forms is easy because you understand the way your body has to be to get that stretch and it all clicks. All right. I'll have to go back and check how you're doing pull-ups. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you have some yep. videos on that. Okay. Did you guys, obviously, I don't want to rehash the whole topic you guys discussed last week, but um, one of the things relating to the point of having different thoughts compared to what got you there, um, I believe, NH, you were saying that you were not, I think in your post, you talked about how you bulked up and it was unnecessary. I, I imagine you guys discussed that to some degree. Was there any kind of general conclusion on your thoughts there? Well, the general conclusion was very surprising. We told people to try it themselves and see what works <laughs> for them. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. I mean, it's just something I've talked about a lot. Like Alberto Nunez has talked about how he didn't need to get that fat. A lot of people it, it talk about how they really didn't need to get so heavy. But I, I just consistently wonder, but would you have gotten there if you didn't? You know, I, I mean, we've all been 220 plus, really. I think, Abel, maybe you've been like 210, 215, something like that. Yeah. I mean, now I went up over 220 for like five minutes recently. Oh, really? But, okay. uh, yeah, my body just huh? really didn't enjoy uh, being there. So, like, just catapulted back below that very quickly. Yeah, yeah. But this is not something, again, I'm not saying get fat. But um, if you've been lifting for a long time and, and you're, like, average height, to, you know, 200 plus is usually not going to be fat, fat if, you know, you've got substantial muscle. Um, but even even back, I, I saw Eric Trexler make a point that I had made, you know, five plus years ago with the whole stuff on, like, P ratio and you got to get lean to make better better gains and everything. And I was like... It, find me a single football player who like a lineman who is told that, you know, if you really want to be the strongest, let, let's cut you down. Let's get you to like 160 so we can bulk you back up effectively to 250. Like that just doesn't happen. These guys were often huge from the time they were in high school. Uh, I, I just actually at the gym the other day, this kid was like 6'3", 250, uh, going to play college at a, a D1 college, sorry, going to play football at a D1 college. And uh, like, I guarantee you, they're not going to have to diet down first, right? Now, I'm not saying this is the best way to become the optimal natural bodybuilder, but I, I just don't think that you need to be or even should be super lean for optimal gains. And I do think there's something to be said for uh, pushing the boundaries a little bit. Steve Hall being a great example as well, right? He, he was always lean. He finally let himself get a little bit softer, still decently lean. Uh, and he, he really made tremendous gains. And, and Jeff, you too. I mean, you, you've pushed well beyond where you used to be weight-wise and, and you, you're a tank, right? So, Yeah, I think it's um, – I don't have any instance that comes to mind where someone was like, 
they started as a skinny beginner and they were 10% body fat and they never went over 12% body fat. Like it's Mm -hmm. just, I can't think of any, not a single one. And often the single biggest flag of a fake natural going back to that talk is if they are lean year round, like not just lean year round, but like spicy year round, you know, they're, they're 10% year round and they're making good progress Mm, and they're this this tinge of red yeah i don't know like that that to me and the vascular like all that together because i mean pretty much every natural has bulked and has spent a pretty good amount of time over 15 percent body fat right like you just don't see many guys who never did any bulk and they actually maintain it just it just doesn't happen or or it's super super rare and I think um, maybe maybe one thing we didn't mention uh, or emphasize as much as we should have in in our uh, bulking roundtable. So okay, like this will come out before that. Then so uh, it's good that I add this caveat is like your body is not stupid. So it's it's always worth to ask yourself how you're actually feeling because like we can debate like whether it's a good idea for you or not to go over say twenty five percent body fat, but it's very unlikely that if you have a body fat percentage where it's just not like it's unhealthy for you and your body is just not productive from a muscle building perspective there, it's unlikely that you will have great libido, great energy levels. You will sleep better than ever before. It's just not likely that you will be in that. Like now when I was at like, I don't know, 103, four kilos, like with a full stomach and everything, but, but, but still I was there. God damn it. <laughs> um, I was, um, like I was just not feeling well. Like I was like always swollen up. I was I was not sleeping well. I was sweating at night like crazy. Like just didn't even really want to go to train anymore because I was just uh, lethargic. Yeah, like your biofeedback is still valuable. Yeah, the, the way your body feels is going to give you a good indication of when you should stop. And this is what I didn't do. This is why I'm trying to warn people against the, the booking meme is because I knew I wasn't actually producing quality mass but I was so in love with the strength gains and the, the, the ability to just get bigger and look bigger that I would just kept on packing on the pounds. And this was my mistake. Putting on pounds is necessary. Like no one gets big by staying the same body weight. It doesn't make sense. But there's a good way to go about it. And for the people who won't watch the walking on table, although I highly recommend you do, the good takeaway that we came as a, that came as a conclusion was that everyone has a different uh, body fat percentage at which they feel the best and at which they can build the most muscle. Some people, it's 12%. Some people, it's 17%. Once you get to that point, you have now a good understanding of where you should not go, of what territories or, or, or waters you should not enter. And this is when it's smooth selling from here. Now it's easier to lose weight and lose fat and gain muscle and, and, and gain weight and gain muscle because you know how your body responds and you know what stimulus gets you what. Before you get to that point, you might end up in territories where you feel terrible and you think, well, maybe it's because I'm not cut off for this. No, it's because you are too fat or you're too skinny. Go back to a place where you are now balanced and then the gains are going to come. So what are you doing now then, NH? Because you're, I think, how, how many years into lifting are you? Oof. Um, well, it's been now 13 years, 15 years. Okay. So... Nice. Uh, well, I, I'm trying to remember when you actually started, because I know we said it was probably similar to me as far as like the actual age. Uh, 15. 15, okay. Um, so at this point, are you kind of over the 
you know, gaining a bunch of weight and cutting back down? Like, are you, I, I imagine you're still trying to progress where possible. So what's your method in terms of the calories and whatnot? So I've always been opposed to the bulking and cutting thing because to me, it's too yo-yo. And uh, it also, also to me, is something that comes from enhanced bodybuilders. Because when you look back at the OGs, at the bronze era, the silver era, we have no data on these guys gaining and cutting a bunch of weight. They never did that. It's not to say that they main gained, but their progression was always linear and very, very slow. So when they needed to cut for a show, it was slow. When they wanted to book for in the quote-unquote off-season, it was slow. That doesn't mean that it's the only way that works. Geoff proved that you can have drastic changes. But again, we discussed that in length in the booking video, so go check that out. For me, I got fat. After years of making slow, steady progress, then I cut down. It didn't work. So I stabilized my weight and I recomped for three years. That was a long time. I'm finally done with this. Now I'm at a comfortable body fat where I feel good. I'm balanced and I'm starting to bulk again. So I'm finally introducing more calories and I can tell you this. The impact on my body is amazing. Three years ago, when I attempted to bulk, I just got fat. I got big love endos, big, big jaws. Nothing changed but my body just looked worse even with a slow book now i get i added like 100 or 200 calories a day which is not that much and i'm starting to see massive increase in gains and strength once more after a long recomp which sort of points to me the fact that my body finally is able to use these resources how did you go about recomping was that maintenance calories yep maintenance for three years yeah, that, but again, that check out like, the bulking roundtable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, dude. That that's like the only example I can think of where that works successfully on somebody who is more advanced. Like you are already ten years in, you know. Because my my anecdote of that was it did not work at all. Even just like a small like going up five pounds and then slowly going down, like the, even that didn't work. So to maintain like that, I, I honestly don't know if I can think of anybody who's not totally new who saw substantial changes just keeping calories the same um so yeah that's just interesting yeah and we actually mentioned you in the video my take and my hypothesis on why it didn't work for you is because you were not fat enough i think the reason why it was successful for me is because when i started i was i was a big boy i had lots of water lots of fat to work with and it also to put in to put in people's heads that i started at 210 and i ended at 210 my physique transformed it's night and day but i would have gained much more muscle if i I'd let myself bulk and I would also have lost much more fat in it if I let myself cut, but I wanted both. And that's recomps. Recomps give you a tiny bit of both, which is why for most people they're not relevant because most no one is in that solution, in that situation. It's also why no one sticks to it, I guess, is because there's no drastic changes in three months. It takes forever, but it does work. Are you, are you saying you would have gained more muscle if you bulked and then you said you would have lost more fat if you cut? Are you saying that you you actually believe the net would have been better if you had bulked for a while, like bulked for two years and cut for one year? If if I had been able to do it perfectly the way Geoff does it, for example, yes. Because yeah. I think that this, these spikes up and downs eventually get you to a high lev level. My issue is that it didn't work. For me, the spikes were always all over the place and I was just yo-yoing. I was in a hamster wheel. I was going nowhere. And uh, this is the time where I tell people to stabilize. Stop moving so much. Try to balance the body with a recomp. And then you can start these spikes up and down again. This is what I'm doing right now. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that you you both acknowledge that it would have worked better for you if maybe done properly, but for whatever reason, it just wasn't. Like, what what do you think the flaw then was for you? For books and cuts? 
Yeah, like why did if you're acknowledging that it if done properly, it would have netted you better or you know, fast results, whatever, what do you think you did wrong? Well, the reason why I encourage people when they do book and cuts to do it slowly, always slowly and conservatively, is because you have the physiological factor, you can also call it the biological factor, and you have the, the psychological factor. To me, it's not uh, anodin, it's not just random for the body to gain a lot of weight and lose a lot of weight. Things happen chemically. And it's very possible that if you gain too much, you're going to sabotage your ability to then lose weight. So you're going to potentially gain way too much fat. And then when you cut, you're not going to cut as much fat as you think, or you're going to lose on performance and lose on muscle. This was really my issue. And this is, again, why I usually don't encourage people to be too drastic is because the perfect plan, the bulking plan on paper is never what materializes. People know that. You tell yourself, I'm going to bulk until 190. You get to 190 and you think, well, I'm huge now. Let's cut. You cut and you realize, wow, I, I barely put on any muscle. Because you get back down to the same weight you were at the start and you see no, no difference in visual, uh, in visual physiques and also no difference in strength. This is when you know you messed up your cut and bulk. And this is what I was doing with my cuts and bulks. I was not able to do things properly. So for me, progressing on a recomp was the way to go to then stabilize and be able to do it properly again. Yeah. Eric Trexler made a good point on that to you, Dave, I think. Did he? Okay. Um, on, the, on the most recent one? Yeah, like like so kind of um calling to question like like why people lose so much size after Oh right, right, yes, yeah, versus maintaining the holding it for a long time and whatnot. Um yeah, I was just gonna say so regarding the point of me being too lean, this is something we, we've kind of talked about before, but um it, it's possible, you know, it's not like I was somebody trying to maintain sub 10%. I was probably I don't know, 12 to 14%. But to be fair, I mean, first of all, that's still decently lean. Secondly, I I mean, I grew up yeah. as a fat kid. So for me, you know, like Alberto Nunez, 12% is like full off season, right? But for me, like that, that is relatively lean. Um, and I said the same thing about me in high school. Like I was stalled as a junior and senior in in high school. And it's like, how is that possible? You, you know, and I think part of it was like, maybe it was like a puberty thing, but also... Um, I, I think I definitely spent too much time cutting and I would have told my high school self, look, it, like the shredded abs are not, are not happening for you in high school. So just do, I probably would have done more like what you did. Actually, I would have said, go up very slowly and maybe hope for some recomp. Um, I, I do think for a lot of people just cutting too much is a problem. And, uh, regarding the, the speed of things though, this is actually one more reason, Jeff, that I think it's interesting how well you've gained because you do go up and down pretty quickly. I mean, I remember you had, there was one time we hadn't talked for like, I don't know, it could have been a month or something. And you were, the last time we had spoken, you were balked. And then the next time we spoke, you were almost done cutting or something. I was like, wait a minute, when did this happen? You know, so you do actually go pretty rapidly. Yeah, I'll, I'll be pretty aggressive on both, but I do have some clients on maintenance. It's not common, but I've gotten, you know, some, people who have just been all over the place. They don't even know what their maintenance is because they've just been super high or super low. And, you know, maybe they have a history of, of eating disorders or binging or something. And they're just, they, they need that stability. They need to just have that ability to be the same, the same body weight. But, but some clients, they just need that stability. Um, I personally like to be pretty aggressive. Like I'm, kind of an extreme person and so when i bulk i bulk fairly aggressively after the end of a cut and then when i cut at the end of a bulk 
I'm also targeting, you know, a kilo a week or more um, in terms of overall weight loss. So, you know, maybe it just suits my personality. I also, over the past two years, have had a really good streak of training, you know, low stress, great sleep. Everything is, is pretty stable in my life for the most part. So that's more powerful than steroids, man. That's that's sleep. That must be it. Yeah, man. That's yeah. my secret. <laughs> you um, want to feel any aging today? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe he agrees. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that. I I made a meme that um you know got a lot of likes and whatnot, and it was just basically saying like some of these like. I have an overall thought that when you've used performance enhancing drugs for a long period of time, you you just again the amnesia thing. You just forget what it's like to be natural. It just it, and again, I don't think it's fraudulent or anything. I just think they just genuinely forget. And uh, Mike Isertel, Mark Loebline, are a couple people that are like, "Oh, sleep is more powerful than steroids." Mm-hmm. And and what they said was, "Yeah, like you know, if you don't believe it, try not sleeping and see what happens. You're going to die." And it's like, okay, so. This way, oxygen and water are all more anabolic than steroids. And obviously, it's a very silly argument. But I would love to ask Mike directly. Okay, so what do you think? How do you think you would shrink faster if you stopped all gear immediately or you started sleeping five hours per night? Which one is going to drop pounds and pounds and pounds of muscle? You know, and I think the answer is pretty obvious. No, Dave, you're wrong. You know, drugs don't do that much. Icing on the cake. Drugs don't do that much. That's why these people run the risk of going sent to jail over taking illegal drugs that they buy on Chinese websites is because they actually don't work that well. It's the hard work that is responsible for these physiques. They could stop tomorrow and it wouldn't make a difference. I guarantee you that all of these guys would argue that. They would tell you, oh, I can, I can stop, I would maintain. It, it always makes me laugh because you see all of these guys who downsize and they like to pretend it's, oh, it's, it's my own choice. No, that's, that's a lie. It's because your doctor told you you were going to die. And how do they downsize? Do they do less volume? No, they just take less drugs and they shrink. They lose 20 pounds. So when someone sits there, buff out of their, their minds and tells you, oh, sleep is better than whatever I'm injecting in my butt cheek, liar. You're trying to find a way to explain why there are other factors out there that are just as important as your drug use to make yourself feel better about your gains, not being 100% correlated with your drug use. To me, that's it. But it's dangerous because they feed that to naturals who then believe it. That's nonsense. Yes, sleep is very important, but it's not as potent as PDs. It never will be. This this was something with um it was brought up with Ben Pakolsky. So uh, you know Ben Pakolsky is somebody who I, I just his delusion as to you know his his genetics and a lot of things are just really it, it's just kind of ridiculous. But he was a top six at the Olympia. You know would say how he, he had horrible genetics and all these things like that. But one of the things he's also been called out for is that he downsized an incredible amount. I mean, he's 80 pounds less muscle, whatever it is. And he was saying, I think it was a different focus on family, but I think later it came out that no, he had like severe kidney issues. He had severe health issues and lo and behold, now you're, you know, and, and I'm glad that you could do that because some people don't, they, they just die because they can't let go of, of the gains. But when you're trying to say, oh, well, it's just because I was trying to focus on family. It's like, okay, it's probably not really why. It's, yeah. um, if if I could, if if we have still have time for for just this, because uh, I would love to get NH's reaction to this. Actually, is um, Scott Stevenson said uh, on my podcast that the the impact of gear is both 
overemphasized and underemphasized just uh, by, by different people because it is definitely underemphasized by yeah like like Ben Pakowski like I mean, some of these claims are just absurd uh, because they do have a monumental impact but they are overemphasized when like like some people actually think that you can go from someone looking like does it doesn't even lift the person and can turn into a Ben Pakowski which that probably does not happen like like um and i i would from what i've seen like uh like most pros most of them probably would not look like that for sure but they definitely wouldn't be like dyels um nh would you ag agree with that well the, the issue with this is that it's true of course i can't just grab a kid off the street and like jab him once and he's mr olympia it doesn't work like that it's not that simple the drugs don't work like that stories once you got him into that van of yours i mean <laughs> once he's in the van he's in for much more than pds but uh, that's a different discussion the the, th the thing the, the issue with this mindset is that it's sort of like a it's a dare but it's, it's pd users telling you well if drugs made me big why don't you take them right see if you get big well, I'm not going to do that. So you win the argument by default. They're correct in, the, in this aspect. And it's also, I, I bet, really annoying for them to have kids come to them and say, well, it's all about the trend. Yeah, it's a little bit more than the trend. But the truth is that without the trend, you would not be like this. And then you can ask the question, well, why would that, what would that person look like natural? That's a great question. Maybe they would have a great physique, but we'll never know because they they stood away from the natural path and now they're a completely different beast. And what's interesting is what happens then when they stop do they go back to just natural level? Yeah, if they stay on TRT. You have plenty of examples of dudes who came like came off and they're natty now. Wrong, they're still on TRT. Without that, they wouldn't just look DL. They would look like they're starving. And there's many examples of that. Well, you have pro bodybuilders, the peak of the sport, 280 on stage. They stopped their drug use, they're 150 now. How, does, how did that happen? A natural lifter will never get that low. You can maintain your muscularity in your 50s and 60s. That is possible. Actually, spoiler, I have a video based on a, on a natural Olympi Olympian who is a gymnast, not even a bodybuilder. The guy's physique is amazing. He's in, his, he's in his 60s. All natural. He's trained his entire life. And he blows every single PD user out of the water once they're off their juice, once they're off their steroids. And he also lives longer than them. So that's that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that yeah. quote by um, Scott Stevenson because it, it is true. Like you know, there are people who you'd be shocked to hear are on gear, right? And, and so it's almost yeah. as if there's some inherent factor that determines your response to things. I don't know. Maybe somebody should make a video. On yeah, that. like a really good example is uh, Joe Statics, the super shredded, super aesthetic German guy. Um, hilarious guy, by the way. But like, so there is a video of him on Instagram where he's like off cycle or something and mm. he still has like a, a very respectable physique it's just like like um delusionally netty or like depressingly netty looking oh, like, okay. i don't know how to say it like like yeah. it's just like it has that netty flatness to it or um i guess that would be the best way to say it yeah cool um all right guys i, I have other stuff i could talk about but i don't want to jump into a new one i know it's, it's getting late on Jeff's size got to get some sleep. So, <laughs> um, so, all right. So where can everybody find more of your stuff? We'll start with NH. Well, uh, YouTube, usually two to three videos a week, sometimes more. They are super long. So you're going to get, uh, what you put your, what, uh, what, uh, what is the, the expression again? I always fumble this one. You'll get your money's worth. You will get your money's worth, even though it's free. Uh, I post on Instagram pictures of myself shirtless. So if you're into that type of stuff and that's pretty much that.
All right, Jeff. Uh, it's my name, Jeffrey Verde Schofield, on YouTube and Instagram. Verity Fit for my books, and then GVS Fit on Twitter. I've actually started shit posting on Twitter, which is surprisingly fun. So uh, go follow <laughs> me over there if you want to peruse those. Uh, SSD Able on YouTube. I have a side channel called Athlinex. It's pretty big. Just kidding. It's not funny. Uh, yeah, SSD Able. <laughs> Uh, on Instagram, it's uh, able fit stuff. It's still available, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you.